Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows, and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. So today I'm talking with Celia Poole, the co-founder of Dame, a sustainable personal care brand on a mission to turn our bathrooms green. Now, did you know that 100 billion period products are thrown away every year and can't be recycled? And tampon applicators are a massive part of this problem. 1.3 billion disposable applicators are thrown away each year in the UK alone. And most of these get flushed down the loo, ending up on our beaches and in our oceans. And this is a problem that Dame decided to tackle head on. Dame was founded in 2015 by Celia, along with her friend Alec Mills. And in 2018, they launched the world's first reusable tampon applicator called D, which has already sold in over 50 countries and secured a nationwide listing in Waitrose. They've also launched an organic cotton tampon, which is synthetic free, biodegradable, and doesn't contain any harsh toxins. In March 2018, Celia raised £120,000 through rewards-based crowdfunding to develop and launch the product. So let's find out more about Celia's fundraising journey, the highs, the lows, the challenges and her top tips for success. Welcome, Celia. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to hear more about how you, how you started this business and how the whole thing's been going. So let's, let's go back to the beginning. Tell me more about how you and Alex... Um, how you, you and Alex started the business. Um, where did the idea come from? Well, I definitely didn't set out in my life thinking that I would be a tampon saleswoman. That was never, ever in the game plan. Um, but yeah, it just sort of came about. We, we only have been working in this sector for a few years and we've been doing subscription service, selling other people's products. Um, and we've been doing the full spectrum. So we've been selling both reusable and disposable. And the whole point around that was offering women more choice, more convenience, um, and a better language around the subject. And the big thing that we couldn't ignore was this huge plastic waste that we saw coming off these products. And it was at a time where we could see that women were increasingly moving into more sustainable products in other areas of their life. So reusable coffee cups, reusable water bottles. But for some reason, we could see firsthand that women weren't buying those reusable options that were available to them within their menstrual products. So things like cups and reusable cloth pads. And we just thought this was bizarre. Like, why, why was this? And so we went and asked all our customers. And the kind of big resounding answer that came back was that the habit change was just too big. It was too much of a leap, a scary thing to move from a tampon to a cup. And we thought, well, this is insane. This is a big problem. You think a woman uses on average 12,000 tampons in her lifetime. Add up the amount of women that are on this planet. That's a lot of waste that people aren't talking about or thinking about. And so we thought, okay, well, we're a small company. We have the ability to try and see if we can do something about this. And so that's how it came about. We thought, well, let's just at least give it a shot. And so we went off on a very 
interesting design journey. Um, very much realizing at the beginning that we needed to make it design-led, not eco-led, because as much as everyone loves to think that they're eco, people go and buy the cool stuff. They buy the stuff that looks beautiful in their handbag, on their shelf, in their lifestyle. And so we went down that route and we came all the way to designing a prototype and thinking, okay, well, what are we gonna do in order to get this into the market? We need obviously cash to finance this, but at the same time, we also need to know that it's not just us that think it's a good idea, it's other people as well. And so we thought, boom, crowdfunding is the best way to do that because you get both. You get money in order to fund your production and you get the crowd telling you whether or not they like your product. That's interesting. So, so you actually already had a business and this was a pivot. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that, so did, and was it that you didn't have the funding available in that business then to go into this new area? We did have still funding left, but we knew that in order to get into production, that's quite a big thing to do. So we knew we needed additional funding for that. Okay. Okay. So in terms of the, the, the original business before you did this pivot, was that a business that you had funded um, yourselves or how had you funded that? Those, the, the very early days, that kind of 2015, 2018. So the early days were funded through ourselves, like most people do, a lot of sweat equity and a lot of like spare cash in your pocket, but minimum spare cash. And then we did a friends and family round. So it was taking around the begging bowl to friends and family and saying, hi, can you help us out? We've got this tampon business that we want to do. Obviously, varied reactions to that <laughs> from a lot of the people. How, how easy is that? I mean, how easy did you find that then to get that money for friends and family? It's, it's funny because basically, like I think most founders know, or most early investors know, they're investing the person quite a lot of the time. The business, yes, but they're investing the person. So we had a lot of people who knew us and knew how dedicated we were going to be to it. But at the same time, a lot of those people, unfortunately, are men and they're older men. And so trying to talk to them about tampons, not so easy. <laughs> not how, so. How did not you so do easy. it? I mean, how did you do That must have been really embarrassing. How did you do it? Well, it's fine. You just talk about it matter-of-factly and you make sure that they're understanding it as a business, not as a product or an individual type. And you have to start resigning yourself to the fact that some people just won't do it because it's not anything that they understand. And it's a really early lesson and a really crucial lesson to learn that just because it's not for a certain type of person doesn't mean it's not for other people. And you just have to brace yourself for it, build a bit of a hard shell and move on. Mm. I mean, it is, it is quite hard, isn't it, when you've got a product which is so very exclusively focused on women and then yeah. having to talk to men about it. It's, um, but I guess, the, I, mean, were the, I guess there were some progressive men that did. A hundred percent, yeah. Some really brilliant men who got on board with it, understood it, saw it as a business and, and went with it. And, you know, those are the people you want because those are the people in the kind of tough times, which inevitably there will be, who are supporting you, giving you advice and understanding. But what, what I find quite interesting about your story, Celia, is that you, you saw this opportunity to, to launch a product yourselves, this reusable tampon that you needed funding for, which is a real pivot for the business. And I, I, I come across many businesses that need to raise money for a pivot and find it really hard because investors usually want to know that this business has already got traction before they'll invest. So I think what you did in terms of going to rewards based crowdfunding was a very, very clever move. Um, so tell us a bit about what's involved in that rewards-based crowdfunding. What are the kind of key steps that you had to take? First of all, it's 
crucially deciding whether or not it's right, whether or not your product is right. And I think we had to go through a checklist and really work out why, what exactly works on a rewards-based crowdfunding website. And one of the key things is a world-first product because people love to be able to go and buy something off there. And quite a lot of the times where people essentially go shopping to go and look for new products that are coming out. And we knew because we had a world-first product, that was a great place to put it. Second of all was audience. Now, actually, we pick Kickstarter because it's an incredible crowdfunding site. But your target Kickstarter audience, I think, is a sort of white 28-year-old male in San Francisco. So not massively our audience, but there are a lot of eco-minded people on that platform. So therefore, we knew that we were already speaking to an audience who was kind of on board with us and on board with what we were doing. And I think that really helps. You have to, there's no point in trying to put something on there which you're not speaking to the right audience at all and no one's going to pick it up. So that was the sort of the early stage of it. And then obviously also picking which platform you wanted to use. And like I said, we were very impressed with the way that Kickstarter um, displayed everything, all the back-end stuff, how they looked after you, the type of audience there were. So deciding which platform was really crucial. And then it was a case of being able to tell your story properly on your project page. Yeah. And that in itself is sort of quite a difficult thing and something that we took quite a lot of advice from. Yeah, I mean, and, it, and is that, I mean, when you're raising equity investment, of course, the story is all about the business and the opportunity for the business to grow and exit. But with, with rewards-based crowdfunding, it's, it's much more weighted towards the product, isn't it? Because that's what people are buying. A hundred percent. It's the product and it's just the story behind the product. It's the story behind the founders and what they believe in and what they were, what they're trying to achieve with the product and what they're trying to do. So that's what's really lovely about it is because you can very much focus on the thing that you're really passionate about mm. and really try and tell that in a, in a way that they can understand because essentially they're confronted with so many other products there on a sort of two dimensional page, which yes, you can get a video, but you have to be quite um, clever and snappy in the way that you present things because they've seen so many other things before. Yeah. Um, but it is a very sort of interesting exercise to go down. And what, so what, what's the pull for people on, on Kickstarter to, to come in and, in and back your product? Is it that they get access to this product before anyone else? Is it because they get a discount? What's the kind of key selling point versus them waiting until that product has actually come to market? It's a funny thing. You get like a kind of quite a split. So on, on these websites, you can just put money in and expect no reward. So it can be a thing where they just believe in the mission. They believe in what you're trying to do and they really back it. And actually we have quite a decent sort of chunk of people who just put money in just to back us. And then yes, a lot of the time it is people who will get the product first and get it. You do offer a discount, a discounted rate and it's up to you how much you do. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's for those people to get the world first, to be the first people there. Yeah. And how, and so what's the time lag then between you getting your Kickstarter campaign done and for you and actually then going out and building that product and be able to deliver it to people? That is completely up to you to write down. So essentially you're in complete control of it yourself. Um, it was definitely one of the things which I think in hindsight, we would have allowed more time for because obviously it was our first time going into production we had no idea of the pitfalls and all the many little things that were going to give us delays. So I think in hindsight, we would have probably given ourselves more time for that, but essentially you can do that. Like I actually have backed something on Kickstarter, I think 
uh, three years ago and I'm still waiting for my product. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> How does that make you feel? <laughs> well, it makes me feel relieved that we got ours out, given that. But, um, but yes, it, you know, it's when you go on this journey, you are essentially are going on a journey with them because they send you updates the whole time once the product project is finished, saying, you know, great, we've got all the money in, we're now going to the manufacturer, we're now doing this, and so you do go on a journey with these people, and you inevitably you know can get frustrated when things don't come or you can get really excited when they ask you questions about what you think the next stage should be so it's very much a sort of a collaborative process mm. and what do, you, what do you find the main kind of advantages and disadvantages of having um these these crowdfunding backers you know who've pre-purchased your product the advantages are obvious you're getting ready-made advocates and people who are really behind you and who are really willing to support you and also give you really honest feedback and I think that's crucial for a new product is you need honest feedback you need to know what's working and what's not working and what they why they're attracted to you so that's great the obviously disadvantages you're doing all of this very publicly so <laughs> if you fail you fail very publicly um, and, you know, with that crowdfunding, it's a 30-day window. And if you don't reach your target, you don't get any of the money. Um, so that's the kind of risk-reward you you um, run. Mm, that must have been terrifying. <laughs> really terrifying. <laughs> how, did you, how did you manage things during that process? I mean, your kind of, just your mindset when you're in that process, what were your techniques to manage the, the stress around that 30-day window uh don't know if i managed it so well <laughs> i think i went slightly too loudly no well they they kind of the 30-day window they kickstarter are great because they give you a lot of um about sort of what a good campaign might look like and they basically essentially say you know if you can raise about sort of 20 25 percent in the first 48 hours you're you know you know that you're kind of on somewhere because those crowdfunding platforms, they're a very sort of busy restaurant syndrome. Mm. You know, if people see that there are other people piling in, more people will go. If people see that no one's there, no one will come in. So I think we really, really just focused our effort on those first 48 hours. And once we were in that position, we felt a little bit more relieved. Then, then it kind of went from there. And we were very lucky that the PR that we were getting, and we, we put, that was the only bit of marketing we did, we put a little bit of money in for PR. Um, that sort of brought us a lot of attention quite early on. And it meant that we were very lucky and, you know, day three, we were funded. And then it was just a case of overfunding. Um, so therefore my, my stress levels decreased slightly after that, but it was still, <laughs> you know, we wanted, we wanted to continue to push it as big as we could. Mm. but it, it, what you say is so interesting about that getting that momentum early on and the reality is often you need to bring your own crowd in don't you so you had a, a kind of business that was going already you were selling product to customers online did a lot of those people come in and back you on your campaign yeah we had some great people who came and backed us who were old customers we were amazing and it was so lovely to see that they'd followed us on from the sort of old version of our business into the new. And then at the same time, we did the classics sort of, you know, knocking on mom saying, please can you buy, please can you buy straight away as soon as it's open, please buy, buy, buy. And so we got like an initial bunch of people who came in who we knew, but then on day one, 
we got an amazing article um, and Fast Company. And so we found that we were getting actually loads of strangers who were coming in on day one and buying, which was really lovely because obviously friends and family are great and brilliant, but it's amazing to see people who don't know you, who believe in you and believe in the product. Yeah, that's amazing. So a mixture of kind of hustle and nagging people. <laughs> and and yeah. the, the PR piece is good. And I think it's, it's quite hard for people to get PR around crowdfunding these days because so many people do crowdfund. But you've got something very, very unique, haven't you, which gives you that angle. I think we were really lucky. So just before, like a couple of months before, David Attenborough did his Blue Planet to put that flag in the sand. And that meant that all press eyes were looking for plastic stories. And when we came out with this, loads of people ran it. Some people, they all ran it for different reasons. Some people thought it was quirky and quite a funny thing to put in. Some people were really, really behind it, but it was amazing. We were getting really, really sort of major publications talking about it. And it meant that we ended up trending on Twitter because of it. And we were having, I think we were having like US senators talking about it on Twitter. And it was just, yeah, we were sitting, we will never forget it. We were sitting around my friends, table about to have supper and suddenly someone was like um i think you're trending on twitter and everyone's eyes were then just boom onto their screen just watching the whole thing going crazy um so it's amazing to see suddenly the pickup from that but i think we were very fortunate that we hit a right time with it and we hit the right appetite that people were really really conscious of this and wanting to look to make changes in their life mm, that's that's right a bit a good bit of luck really helps doesn't it and all yeah stars kind of aligning at the same time um, so that you can kind of ride the wave that's going on in the bigger context yeah really good amazing and I mean what would you do differently do you think if you were going to do it again is there anything you would do differently I think differently I definitely would have given ourselves more time for the manufacturing time I think you always want to kind of you're concerned that you don't want to leave too long to put people off when they first initially come in, but at the same time, you always want to kind of under-promise, over-deliver. And we should have probably thought a bit more, well, the thing is you don't know, if you're doing things for the first time, you never know how things are gonna turn out. So um, we were very lucky that throughout, we were very clear after the project had finished on updating our backers the whole time. So making sure that we were always telling them, you know, this has happened, this delay's happened, you know, we're really sorry, we're working on it. And I think that, helped us that we also had a very, very understanding, receptive audience who were, again, really backed us. And so even though there were delays, they were still really excited, really pumped. And so when we got everything out to them, you know, they were very understanding about it. Mm. So open and honest communication, really critical. Exactly. Yeah. How long did you actually say that you would take to do the manufacturing out of interest? I think we said around about four months and then we were about four or five months and I think we were another sort of three or four months delayed on top of that so no but like when you're <laughs> when you're in it every single yeah. hour day is <laughs> pushing you down yeah. and did you feel I mean when you look back now in terms of how much you raised um do you feel like it was enough to make it work yes yeah no definitely it was enough to get us like off the ground and where we needed to go and get out into production mm. so it was seriously beneficial and I think it's amazing because without that kind of cash, small businesses like us don't have that chance of survival. Mm. And it's brilliant because not only does it give you the cash, it 
gives you the customers, the advocates, you know, the story, everything else. So it's really, it's got so many benefits to you if you are the right business for that type of platform. Yeah. And you, and you, so you topped up the round there, didn't you? You did a bit on, on a Kickstarter and then you topped up on Indiegogo. Yeah, exactly. So basically after the Kickstarter campaign finished, we moved it across to Indiegogo, which is another crowdfunding website, and they allow you to continue your campaign running. So essentially you're getting pre-sales the whole time. So we carried that going whilst we were building the things so that we can ensure that we were getting, you know, as many people as we could enough in order to get the scale that we needed to bring our prices down even further to make it more possible. Mm. I mean, I, I love what you've done with this campaign. I think it's a brilliant way to get that product out. And, but I, I think um, it's funny because you don't hear that many entrepreneurs. I don't come across that many entrepreneurs these days and I deal with them all day long talking about rewards based crowdfunding. It's, um, it, it, there was a moment, I think, a few years back where it was quite sexy and then it seems to have come out of favour. What's your what's your view on that, Celia? I don't know. It's kind of it's definitely for a certain type of product, a certain type of business. Like not every business would have should, would or should go on this. I mean, for example, our old business, we were offering more of a service, less a, a world first product. So we wouldn't have been right for it. And. I think that is, is a large part of it. So therefore, those equity-based web um, platforms are very much more open to lots of different types of businesses, whereas this could be a little bit more specific. Mm. But if you are the type of business who is right for this, it is incredible. It really is, because it doesn't just give you the cash. It gives you what you need, which is the customers, the PR, the press, the... Um, the public forum in which to display not only your product, but your customer service, the way you speak to people and the way that you build up a journey. So it has so many benefits if you use it to the best of your ability and you do really need to invest a lot of time and energy and money and always be, um, not sorry, not money, time and energy, because you need to always be on it, speaking to your audience, communicating with them, making sure that they're okay like we still are in touch with all of our crowdfunders the whole time now and they are they are our best customers they are brilliant and we very much value them as our top um yeah our top fans yeah and, and as you said before i think almost nothing to lose i mean i say almost but if you don't <laughs> succeed there's probably a good chance that people perhaps don't really want this product it's it, so but obviously as, as you said it's a public failure but it's not um necessarily going to be catastrophic for your business it just means that this product isn't right um so i think that's quite clever but whereas you know when you come to equity crowdfunding often that is a kind of make or break business um funding piece um i mean but do you do you think that you will look at other types of investment as you move the business forward what's your view on that yeah, I think definitely we will look at other ones. You know, we will look at equity, we'll look at debt, we'll look at lots of different things. We're now very much in a consumer products business. Um, and now that we've got contracts with a retailer and potentially more in the pipeline, you know, we will need to be able to fund stock purchases. And so therefore there are kind of various different sort of debt facilities that we can look into, such as invoice factoring and things like that. Um, so it's not the end of our crowd of our funding by any stretch of the imagination, but at least now we're in a steady rhythm where mm. you know we have a product, we're selling it, we're getting money in, and we can sort of be a bit more sort of on top of our finances. Mm. And I also think that's great. You're looking at, at debt options too, and and factoring and things like that. 
again, I think there's too much focus sometimes on this badge of like raising investment, which isn't necessarily the right way to go. And it's certainly not the only way to go. No, I think the whole emphasis on going after in particular VC money, it can be a noose around your neck, which can tighten quite quickly and constrain both you and your company. I think, again, depending on the business, if you can pull in other different options, it's, it's worthwhile because it means that it will allow you to grow your business in the way that you want to, mm. not having to think about the sort of 10 times return that you need to get or what other, other, other metrics that have been put upon you. Um, and again, for our type of business, I think debt is something that will work very well for it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's at the end of the day, that's the most important thing, isn't it? That you're building a business that, that you want to build that's in line with your vision, with your personal ambitions to scale, rather than building it because in a way that it needs to be built to meet the needs of an investor. Which makes Definitely. Sense. And we're, we're a values-driven company. Everything that we do is about business as a force for good, is about, you know, undoing all the bad stuff that's been done on the planet so far and trying to reverse it and so therefore if we have investors whose pure focus is just the bottom line it's not going to work for us because we are going to do things that are against the bottom line which we feel are better for example we will spend more on sustainable processes or packaging that we feel is of a better quality or we can reuse or something else like that which some traditional investors would not appreciate because for them it's all a race to the bottom line but for us it's important that we have the right people on board with us who understand that we're looking at a bigger picture we're looking at profit and purpose mm. and who better than that than your best customers to be on that journey <laughs> with you so you're so so what's next then Celia you're in Waitrose which is amazing you're selling directly to consumers on your on your consumer website um which i encourage everybody to check out i will be definitely doing that myself but you know where how else are you going to get this product out there because it is amazing and this should be in every woman's handbag pocket bathroom right well to be honest like we've been quite amazed by the fact that this has turned into quite a kind of global product so we sold like like you said sort of in over 50 countries around the world and we continue to get international sales I think for now we want to definitely expand out and try and get it as much into the mainstream as possible. Like our ultimate goal is to get people to move on to reusables. Now that doesn't have to be our reusables. It can be anything. We just want to help people switch. And we thought that doing a product like a reusable tampon applicator, it's an easy switch. So hopefully we're bridging the gap for some people to either move on to our product or move on to other more sustainable products. Either way, that's an important mission for us. And therefore, it's something that we don't want to just stop with menstrual products. We want to go into the bathroom and essentially turn the bathroom green and rethink, reimagine all those products you see that have so much plastic around them, so much needless waste, and really have a go at redesigning them, making them more functional, better performing, more beautiful, and really allowing the consumer the choice to not have to compromise between their sustainable values and the beautiful types of products that they want to use. Mm. Well, I think, honestly think what you're doing is, is awesome. The time is so ripe for this stuff. I can't see any other future for you girls than amazing success, really. So, um, thank you. We've got a massive <laughs> amount of 
climb and we're very much at the bottom of it but it's it's fun it's challenges and you know we're just going to keep sort of cracking on and trying to achieve it because you know that's all that we can do but yeah we still have a long way to go (laughs) well congratulations and thank you so much for sharing your story with us and uh, we will be watching your business with great interest thank you so much Celia oh thank you great speaking Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.